So, it's kind of odd being back in the pulpit again, you know. I, it's been, I feel like I've been out of the pulpit for a year or something, you know. It's only been two weeks, but uh, nonetheless, I'm finally back in the pulpit this morning, and, and, and things are exciting for me. And, and this week as I was working through the sermon, I was wrestling with stuff, and I was reading the scriptures, and, and I was just looking over this passage of scripture, and it just wasn't clicking, like, Lord, what do you want to say out of this? And where are we going with this in Hebrews? And, and how does this whole thing uh, translate and all these things? And then it finally it clicked together. And the Lord really began to speak to me about this next part of the book of Hebrews. And, and remember when I started off with the book of Hebrews, I told the congregation that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament Covenant with, with the Israelites, wasn't really that different from the New Covenant. Like we tend to laser focus on the differences. I mean, there are some differences in, in a way, but it's, these things aren't that different as we see or as we seem to think they are, you know, on the surface. And today's passage is a perfect example of that. Though people often use this passage to focus on the differences. It's, so it's so interesting. It's, it's an example of how, how you... Is it, I'm confusing myself now. It's an example that shows how you approach the Scriptures, the heart attitude you have when you approach the Scriptures, the way that you're coming to God's Word will totally affect how you read and interpret it. So it's a great example. Uh, to understand um, how I can take this passage so differently, because I'm going to show how it shows the similarities, and others will show how it shows the differences, we're going to have to get into it and read it together. Okay? So here's the passage. It's Hebrews chapter 7. Verses 11 through 22. Now, I know that's a lot. That's a big passage for me. Some of you are like, hallelujah, 11 verses in one Sunday. So I'm not saying we won't come back to it next week. Who knows? But uh, we're going to read through this, these 11 verses together. And, and then we're going to pray. And then we'll get into how these things show the similarities, how this passage does. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, you may be reading from a different translation, and that's okay. So here we go. Now... If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Let's just pause there. So why do we have to have another priest after the order of Melchizedek instead of the Aaronic priest? Why is this change? What's there if perfection were attainable? Okay, let's go on. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. I lost my place. From which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness, wow, because of its weaknesses and uselessness. 
For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor, or the guarantor, sorry, I mispronounced that word, the guarantor of a better covenant. Let's pray before we dig into this. Father, we come to you right now. And we know that how we approach this passage will we'll bring out different aspects of it. And not that, not that there's only one way to come at this passage. But Lord, I believe that you have spoken to me to come at this passage to show how you are the same God always. That you do not change. Lord, probably part of the reason of that is that we need to hold fast as a church knowing that you're the same God and and knowing you're not going to change and knowing that you're not going to waver as we face trials and temptations and struggles of various kinds. And so, Lord, I pray today that as we dig into this message today, as we look at how this whole thing works, that you would speak clearly, strike from my mind words that I would create. And put your words in my mouth instead. Lord, that I would speak nothing that's not of you. And Lord, that I would forget nothing that is of you. So that your people are ministered to. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. So, verse 22 of our passage is what I think people tend to focus on. Right? It says there that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. That... Through him, he guarantees a better promise from God. And so this denotes some differences, and there are absolutely differences. But are they as big as we often think they are? People say, see this major difference? But the question that I have is, if there's such a major difference then why is the New Testament full of references to the law of God? Why is the New Testament full of some of the very same things that the Old Testament said? Why the law then? I mean, this passage talks about the law and a change in the law. But if this is a better covenant, and why doesn't it say that the law is gone? Why doesn't it say that there is no more law, there's only grace? Now, I know the heart of people when they say this. And so I'm not beating anybody up if you say this. People talk about, oh, I've got my feet, both feet firmly planted in the grace camp. As if it's different than the law camp. But can I tell you that God sees no contradiction in these things? It's not grace or law. That's not what the scriptures teach. That's nowhere in the Bible. I know I can already hear some of the arguments coming up. I'm going to get to them. I promise. But why the law? I mean, if if God knew all of this and if God knew what he was going to do, why did he even ever produce the law? 
The answer is inside the passage. And in discovering the answer, I, I think it supports the premise that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are not really as different as people think they are. So what's the law's purpose? So what's the law's purpose? Some people suggest that the Jews were formerly made righteous through observing the Old Testament law. I've heard people say that. I've heard people say that that's still the case today. That, that the Jews are in a different boat than us. That they're God's chosen covenant people and they have to keep the law and all of those things. Now, to those who hold that viewpoint's credit, they're right. The Bible says there's two ways to heaven. I know that some of you are reeling right now going, no, the Bible doesn't. Yes, it does. I promise you, the Bible says there are two ways to get to heaven. Not one. The first way, keep the law and live. Now, how many of you have done that? And so the second way for everybody but Jesus... It's through Jesus Christ and what he did. But even inherent in that, law and grace are working together because Jesus kept the law so that we could have grace. They're not so different. They go hand in hand. This isn't some crazy thing that is like, wow, you know, the Old Testament, they have to keep the law and live and, and boy... Too bad for them. All those people are burning in hell and you know because they couldn't make it in. But guys, this, you know, it's just not that different. It's just not that way. This passage has some interesting things to say about this idea that the Jews or anybody is made righteous by the law or that that was ever God's plan. I mean, look at verse 11. And I'm going to read it slow, not because I think you're slow, but because I want to really focus in here, okay? Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after Aaron, after the order of Aaron? Okay, follow me here. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, if somebody could be made righteous by the law, if somebody could do it, if perfection could be attained by the law, why do we need another priest after the order of Melchizedek? If it was possible for a Jew to do this, if it was possible for anybody to do this, why? I know some people are thinking, well, I don't know, Pastor. You're, you're kind of taking that a little, little bit too seriously. Really? The word there in verse 11 that says, Now if perfection, that word perfection, is the Greek word uh, teleosis. And it's the act of making something complete and without defect or blemish. It's not the act of making something without defect and blemish. It's not the act of making something complete. It is the act of making something complete and perfect. For instance, I am complete. I am not perfect. Right? 
Like, have you ever built anything, made something, finished it, and figured out there were some flaws in it? Anybody ever done that? Amen? Written a paper, it was complete, and there was a typo in it, it had a flaw in it. Uh, made a cake, and everything was complete, but something went wrong with a part of it. You know? Have you ever razzed your wife about making brownies and telling her brownies were cake-like and then make the worst cake-like brownies in the world yourself? I did that one day. <laughs> yeah. And then Ange told me how to fix it, but that's neither here nor there. The idea from this verse is that perfection was not attainable, was not possible ever from the Levitical priesthood and the giving of the law. It wasn't that it was possible and now all of a sudden is impossible. It wasn't that God in, in His infinite wisdom was like, okay, I'm going to give them the law and, and they're going to keep the law and they're going to live. And then like thousands of years after He did this, He goes, wow, I'm a bonehead, that didn't work. That's not what God was doing. I mean, God is omniscient. If you believe that God is omniscient, or at least believe that the Scriptures teach that He's omniscient, raise your hand. Okay? Omniscient, for those of you who don't know, means that He knows everything. So that means He knows, or He knew before the fact, that nobody was going to be able to keep the law. Because if He didn't know that, then He learned it. Which means He isn't omniscient. You understand what I'm saying? Amen? Okay? So God is omniscient. The scriptures teach that he's omniscient. It was never possible to get to God through keeping the law. God never intended the law to be a means to righteousness, even in the Old Testament times. But if you still have your doubts, jump with me in the passage down to verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and, say it with me, uselessness. Let's try it again. Weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better, introduce, or a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Guys, what I'm saying to you is that the Old Testament law is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Not because it was strong and useful and then became weak and useless. God never intended it to be a means to get to Him. God never intended you to keep the law as a means of righteousness. Does this mean weak and useless in every single sense of the word? I, I don't think so. I think it means weak and useless as a means of attaining perfection or taliosis. I think that's what it means. It's weak and it's useless in, in, in becoming complete and perfect without blemish. I mean David... King David, a man after God's own heart. Can I get a witness? Amen. Doesn't the word say that? Amen. Okay. He sinned with Bathsheba and other places. He counted Israel when he shouldn't have. This is a man after God's own heart. 
I mean, God swore a promise to David that one of his descendants would always sit on the throne of Israel. But he's, he fell. This wasn't through keeping the law. This wasn't through observing it perfect. It, it's not that the law doesn't have a purpose. It's that its purpose was never for righteousness. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to an audience who has believed that your righteousness came through law-keeping. To the early church to the, and to the Jews at that time period, to call someone a Pharisee was not an insult. It was a compliment. It would be like you turning and looking at your neighbor right now and saying, boy, you're a conservative evangelical. It's a compliment, we think, right? Because, you know, we believe that we need to be believing God's Word and, and, and following it and that, we, that it takes faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, the Pharisees were the people who thought it mattered how you lived. Do you think it matters how you live? Raise your hand if you do. Anybody? Amen? I think it matters how we live. These are the people that thought it mattered how we lived. These are the people, this is the group of the Jews who thought there was an afterlife. The Sadducees did not believe that there was an afterlife. They thought you lived on this earth, you died, and that was all there was. That's why they're sad, you see? But... <laughs> But the Pharisees believed in an afterlife. I mean, this was the conservative group. This was the religious elite. These were the people that were the teachers of everybody. This is what Paul was before he was born again. Paul, as a Pharisee, sat at the feet of the premier teacher in Israel, Gamaliel. And he was Gamaliel's star pupil. People wanted to be Pharisees. Because they believed that keeping the law would bring righteousness. It's why the Pharisees would go on and write all of these books and do all of these teachings. It says to keep the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. We can't do any work on it. Six days you shall do your work and on the seventh day you should rest. And they'd go, okay, what's work look like? I kid you not. Who knows what a fig is? Raise your hand. How much do you think a fig weighs? An ounce maybe? Maybe two ounces? If you carried more than two figs worth of weight on Saturday, you had violated the Sabbath because you were working. Like they wanted to make sure nobody worked. If you carried more than a mouthful of water on the Sabbath, you worked. I mean, Jesus addressed some of these. I know some of you are like, really? Yes, if you go and study what the Pharisees believed, that's what they would teach. Jesus even addresses some of them. He says, which of you who has a neighbor who has a donkey that falls into a pit won't lift him out on the Sabbath? Right? Because they're on him because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. And like, that's work. Can't do that. I mean, they believed that righteousness came through law keeping. And they were the religious elite and people wanted to be them. People wanted to be the Pharisees. But that's not what God ever meant. Guys, we cannot attain a right standing by observing the law, nor could the Jews, nor was that ever God's intention. Now, for a lot of us, I know that we don't have any problem believing that. Okay? I know we don't have any problem believing. But then we kind of disregard the law. I just want to tell you something. The law's purpose in the New Testament is the exact same purpose that it served in the Old Testament. There is no difference. It applies 
in an identical way. Do you know how I know? Because the New Testament tells me. I read my whole Bible. Not just the parts I like. And some of the things that the New Testament tells me, quite frankly, I don't like. You know, like in my flesh. Like I read them and I'm like, I don't want to do that. Does that ever happen to anybody? Come on, be honest. You read something, you're like, no. No, I don't do that. I don't like it. You know what I mean? I'm like, mm, I don't, uh, I see my brother in need. I, I don't want to give it to him because I'd rather get a new kayak. Uh, no, no. You know, Keith's having a, a, a rough day and needs some help, and I wanted to go fishing instead, so I, I got to ignore that. I don't want to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's where I am. You know, I'm just being honest. But, you know, we can't attain a right standing. That's why we have verse 22, right? What's verse 22 say again? This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay? So what is the purpose of the law? Is there a reason for the law? Is there a reason for the law? That's the question I want you to wrestle with. Homework for this week is going to be very important for the next several points. I am not going to go in and read all the scriptural references for you out of this. Because that's not my job. That's your job. Right? The scriptures say that you should also study to show yourself a work approved. And Awana would say, a workman approved, need not be ashamed. Amen? So, you know, you're supposed to read this, so we're going to work together, right? I'm going to give you the list of the scriptures, and you're going to look them over, hopefully. It's going to be a, a partnership for you to come to an understanding. Now, again, some Christians suggest that the laws, that because of verse 22, Jesus being a guarantor of a better covenant, that the laws only meet, sir, woo, sorry, that, I don't have, understand my own notes, that the law only served as a means to show us our need for Jesus. That's like the only purpose of the law. And, and to their credit, they're right to a degree. To a degree. That is one purpose of the law. It's not the only purpose. It is one purpose of the law. The Old Testament law, according to the New Testament, serves as a schoolmaster, King James Version, or a guardian, ESV, that brings us to Christ. This is in Galatians chapter 3, and I'll, I'll give you the scripture references at the end, so don't worry about it. I'll give them to you again. It's in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. This, this is a really interesting concept. The law serves as a schoolmaster or a guardian that drives us to Christ. The law pushes us to Jesus. The law has always pushed us towards Jesus. And it's the New Testament telling us, the purpose of the law, it still serves a purpose. You can't just ignore it. Don't tell me this, well, I'm a grace Christian. And I don't go on for all that law stuff. Give me a break. It was through the law you were saved. Jesus kept the law perfectly. 
And because he didn't have to pay his own sin debt, because he never broke the law, he could pay yours. So you need to be praising God for the law. But it serves as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So I could go into, in, into some details about how this happens. And you know what? i got about 15 minutes left. I think I will. So the first step in this is that the Old Testament law defines what sin is. Many of our homework passages for this week deal with this very concept. The first epistle of John, not the gospel of John, not the beginning of the New Testament, the first epistle towards the end of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 3 says that sin is transgression of the law. Paul says another place, he said, I, I didn't know what it, sin was until the law came, and then sin came alive in me. I didn't know what it was till covet, to covet until the law said, do not covet. And then all of a sudden I'm like, ooh, I'm coveting everything. The law defines sin. It tells us what sin is. By the way, this is the New Testament saying it. So the law still today tells us what sin is. And what did Jesus say to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, who everybody wanted to stone when he gave her grace? Go and say it with me. Sin no more. Can I, can I translate it? Give it to you a different way. Go and follow the law. Wait, it gets better. Jesus says in another place in the scripture, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What? Now, I'm not saying the law is a means to righteousness at all. But I'm saying the law tells us what sin is. Paul says, I believe in Romans chapter 8, so shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. And according to Galatians, where's Galatians at again in the Old Testament and the New Testament? On the count of three, yell it out. One, two, three. Yeah. All right. And it, and, 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 I'm so dumb. I don't mean Galatians. Where's First John at? New. It says that that's that. <laughs> I got all confused on my scripture references. Sin is transgression of God's law. But there's plenty of other places in the New Testament where it says that. Many of our homework passages deal with this this week. Another point is that because it tells us what sin is, it also shows us our sinfulness and stops us from declaring ourselves righteous. This is in Romans chapter 3. That it stops the mouth of the person. That like, you know, let me, I'll explain it this way. I, I'm a real big fan, and I know that some of you may not like this, and some of you may not even know what I'm talking about. I'm a real big fan of the way of the master technique of evangelism by Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron, okay? Because it uses the law to bring about the knowledge of sin. Now, 1 John 3 and several other passages of Scripture tell us that, that breaking the law is sin. So if I come to Keith and I say to Keith, Keith, I got some really good news for you, brother. Somebody went to the courthouse and paid a $25,000 fine for you this morning. 
Does that sound like good news to you or does that sound like foolishness? If Keith's honest, it sounds like foolishness. Because Keith is like, I I don't have a $25,000 fine. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a $25,000 fine. That's just ridiculous, right? But if I came to Keith and I said, Keith, this morning on your way to church, they clocked you, the state police clocked you. Doing, you you weren't you weren't doing what you thought was bad. You were doing fifty five miles an hour coming down your coming down towards the church, and it, and and it's usually a fifty five mile an hour zone. But they had that marked down to a twenty mile an hour zone there because there's a camp in that area today for blind and deaf kids, and you came through there at fifty five miles an hour. It was very dangerous, and there were ten clear signs on the way there that told you that you were to slow down and that you weren't supposed to do that, but you didn't see those signs. You ignored those signs. You blasted right through there, and they clocked you doing 55 in that 20, and there's a $25,000 fine that goes with that, but you need to be praising God because somebody stepped in and paid the fine, and you don't have to pay it. Now, all of a sudden, it's good news because Keith now realizes he broke the law. See, the purpose of the law defining what sin is, and we use the law still in the New Testament for unbelievers, is to show them what sin is. Listen to me. I want to convince you to do something today. Stop using Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to tell people they're sinners. Stop it. Because people compare themselves to other people. Use God's law. Do you know the Old Testament says that there's not one person who won't declare his own goodness? If I had, that's right, high five, brother. No? Okay. Nobody will not declare their own goodness and their own righteousness. I'll prove it. Now, some of you are going to not do it because I said I'm going to prove it. How many of you think you're a good person? Raise your hand. Just be honest. How many of you think you're a good person? What about the part of the scripture that says there's nobody that's good? No, not one. Good when it comes to people has to do with moral perfection, sinlessness. If I go out and I ask a lost person, are you a good person? They go, absolutely. And they go, well, Romans 3.23 says, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. You're not good. They go, okay. Whatever, dude. You know, they're backing away. But if I go and I say, were you a good person? They say, yeah, I'm a good person. I say, would you mind taking a test? And I say, okay. I'll say, have you ever lied ever once in your life? Ever? And, and here's the bottom line. There's nobody in the world who's never told a lie. So well, what's that make you? And they go, oh, a sinner. No, it makes you a liar. No, I'm not a liar. One lie doesn't make me a liar. Uh, question. How many murders make you a murderer? Just one, right? Right? All of a sudden, I'm a liar? Have you ever taken anything that didn't belong to you, no matter how small or insignificant the value? Cookie from the cookie jar when mama wasn't looking when you were a kid. A pen from work. What's that make you? A lot of people say Steelers. No, Steelers are a football team down in Pittsburgh. (laughs) Makes you a thief. Right? Makes you a thief. And that's just two of God's commands. His law. 
Don't bear false witness. Do not steal. I said, wow, of your own admittance, you have, you have disobeyed God's law. And you have sinned against the holy God. And they're like, whoa, you're doggone right. That's crazy. And we go on through. And then when I get to explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, then when I get to explaining what Jesus came to do to take away sin, all of a sudden, it's good news. It really is good news. Because they realize, I need it. I mean, it's like if I came to Mark and I said, Mark, I I, I went to great expense and I bought you. These aren't Altoids. These are medicine. This is a cure for cancer. And you've got cancer. And I I went to great expense and I purchased this cure for cancer for you. And and I want you to have this cure for cancer and to take it. And you're going to go, okay, thank you, because Mark is polite. He's not like me. Because I'd go, what? Mark will be like, okay. And I'll walk away and Mark will go, Pastor's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, right? But if I came to Mark and I said, Mark, I see ten clear signs and I've talked to the doctors and you've got cancer and here's the signs and I walk through the signs of cancer and all those symptoms and everything. And Mark becomes convinced of the disease and Mark's like, oh, what am I going to do? And I'm like, it's good news, dude. It's the only curable form of cancer and here's the cure. I, I went to great expense to buy that for you. It's guaranteed to work. You can go talk to the doctor. He'll he'll tell you. Mark's going to go and take the cure, right? See, people have to become convinced of the disease before they'll take the cure. And that's what the purpose of the law is, is to show that people are sin, to sinful and, and, and to stop them from justifying themselves. And that's what it says in Romans 3.19, that, that, people, that the law stops us from justifying ourselves, saying that we're righteous, trusting in our own self-righteousness. Something very interesting out of the Old Testament. Now, let me just ask a question. Is the whole Bible God's Word? If the whole Bible's God's Word, raise your hand. All right. Psalm 19 says something really interesting. Okay? Depending on your translation, it says revival or conversion. And there might be some other ways that it's translated, but those are the only ones I'm aware of. This is probably the most difficult thing to understand in this process and, I, and, I, and, and to wrap our mind around. Not because it's a difficult concept, but because it's just so radically different than how we usually think. It's because we've been taught as New Testament Christians we're not under the law any longer. But is this really the case? The law was never meant to be a means to righteousness. It always existed as a means to show us our great need to throw ourselves on the mercy of, uh, and the love of Jesus Christ. So what does Psalm 19 say? Psalm 19 says this, the Old Testament law brings revival and conversion to our souls. Psalm 19, it's going to be in your homework this week, in your homework. You're going to be looking at it. It says the law revives or converts the soul. Guys, how does this work? I mean, this is this will blow you away, the purpose of the law in our life, to revive or to convert our souls. It's not that we're not under the law in the New Testament. It's that we're no longer under the curse of the law. And people often read that and they say, yeah, we're no longer under the curse, which is the law. No, no, no. It's the curse of the law, which is death. 
We're no longer under the death curse. We no longer have a death sentence. Verse 22 of our passage says that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The law converts the soul. It revives the soul. Why? Because when I show Mark those ten clear signs, when I explain to Keith how he, how he violated the law and all of those things, it makes them happy and to see the good news. And they say, yes, I'll have Jesus, please, and thank you. Yes, I'll receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Yes, absolutely. I see my need for that. This all of a sudden makes sense. It doesn't seem like nonsense anymore. I'm like, I'm, I'm lost. I know, I know some of you struggle with this concept, but can I just tell you, in Jesus' own personal evangelism techniques, He did not give grace to proud people. He gave them the law. There's a rich young ruler who comes to him and says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. See, the first thing he was doing was it was correcting that young man's understanding of the word good. When good is talked about people, it means morally excellent. That Greek word there in that passage means morally excellent. Now, Jesus didn't say he wasn't good because he was morally excellent because he was God, but he was trying to correct his understanding of the word good. Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. He said, well, you know what it says. You know you know what the law says. Do this. And he lists off some of the commandments. He lists off the stuff about honoring God, keeping the Sabbath, all that stuff. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done all that. The guy's declaring his own goodness. Just like I said, Right? And Jesus says, okay, okay, okay. One thing you lack. Take all your possessions that you have, sell them, give the money to the poor, then come follow me, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And what's the rich young ruler do at that point? He goes away sad. Because Jesus showed him. Now, let me just let's pause. Jesus showed him something. What did Jesus say in another place that the entire law and the prophets hung on? Like, what was the command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, soul, and being, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus tells us another place that the neighbor is not the person who necessarily lives next door to you. It's anybody you come in contact with. Jesus shows him how he's not a law keeper. He says, oh, money's your God. Sell all your stuff. Sell all your possessions. Those are your God. Get rid of them. And then give it to poor people who are around you. See, he's showing him. You don't love God and you don't love people, which is what he said the entire law hung on and the guy went away sad you know why because jesus was right wait 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 what about the woman at the well and you know there at jacob's well she's talking to jesus and and jesus used the law with her she comes in she's talking about this whole living water thing back and forth and and jesus says i'll tell you what go get your husband now remember she was prideful she was prideful. She was saying that as Samaritans, the Messiah would come through them and it was right to worship in Samaria at the mountaintop where they had decided. And he was a Jew who was saying it was right to worship in Jerusalem. I mean, she's arguing with him at the beginning of this story. Don't believe me? Go look at it. Okay? He says, you know what? I give you, she says, give me this living water, you know, because she's being kind of arrogant and kind of cocky with it. Give me this living water. And he's like, okay. But first, go get your husband. 
She goes, I don't have a husband. He goes, that's right. You're living with somebody you're not married to, which is sin. Matter of fact, you've had five husbands. And he used the law to convict her. She's broken. She receives him. And then she goes and tells all the people in her town, okay, come and meet this man who told me everything I ever did. He didn't tell her everything he ever did. He told her five things. Six, actually. The guy she was living with currently, she wasn't married to, and the other five husbands that she didn't end divorce. He just told her about her, her breaking of the seventh commandment, not committing adultery. I mean, this is how Jesus evangelized people. Now, if somebody came and was already humble and already knew that they were a sinner and already knew that they were broken, Jesus gave them grace. But people who were declaring their own righteousness, Jesus didn't give them grace. He gave them the law. Because the law was a schoolmaster to drive them to Him. You see, the Old Covenant couldn't provide the righteousness. Only Jesus could. Those who were alive during the Old Testament times, during the law, it was weak weak and it was useless even then in the sense of giving perfection. They were putting their faith, those that are in heaven, were putting their faith in the coming Messiah. Abraham, we're going to get into the Faith Hall of Fame later on in the book of Hebrews. All Old Testament people, all about faith, not law-keeping. Trusting in this coming Messiah, trusting in the promises of God, knowing that a Messiah was someday coming to redeem the world. And we were putting their faith in Jesus. Hey, we live in the New Testament times. We get to look back at Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Can I get a witness? It's all about Jesus. Both covenant groups need Jesus. We are the same in this aspect. But in the new covenant group, we've seen what it means to have Jesus revealed fully. You see, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're, they're not that different. I mean, it says in Malachi chapter 3, I, the Lord your God, do not change. And it says in Hebrews chapter 13 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That includes in the Old Testament times. You see, the law has a purpose. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to go and I want you to read your homework this week. On Monday, it's Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. Tuesday, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Monday is that Galatians passage that teaches you about Jesus being a guardian or a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. I want to encourage you guys this week on homework to read it in multiple translations. Uh, Tuesday, the law defines what sin actually is through that 1 John 3, 1 through 10. Verse 4 is the place where it actually says that uh, sin is transgression of the law. Wednesday, the law defines what sin is. Romans 3, 9 through 20. Verse 20 tells us that the law defines what sin is. And it keeps us from justifying ourselves before God. Keeps us from relying on our own self-righteousness. That's in verse 19. Thursday, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. Sin is defined by the law. It actually tells us what sin is. Specifically, verse 7 says this. That's that part that I told you. I I didn't know what sin was until the law came. Friday, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 14. Verse 7 is the one that says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting or reviving the soul. 
And then Saturday, for like the born-again believer who knows and loves Jesus Christ with everything they have, Psalm 119, verses 1 through 16. Everybody say, praise God. I didn't assign all of Psalm 119. Everybody say, praise God again. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, okay? You want to read the whole thing? Go for it. But verses 1 through 16. Saturday, knowing God's law helps us to avoid sin. Not because we follow all the rules, but because we love Him and know what He wants in our relationship with Him. I don't not sin against Ron because there's a rule that says that I shouldn't. I don't sin against Ron because I love Ron and I don't want to hurt him. I don't not sin against uh, Rachel because, you know, there's a rule that says I have to treat Rachel nice. I mean, is there a rule that says that? Absolutely, but that's not why I do it. I do it because I love her and I don't want to hurt her. This homework will hopefully show you that the law still has the same applicability today as it's always had. Amen? So let's pray together as the worship team comes back to the platform. Father God, we thank you that you have loved us enough to give us your law. Lord, we confess to you right now that sometimes your law really feels like a burden. But Lord, we know that it isn't meant to be a burden. Lord, help us to not become legalistic people who believe that we have to keep the law as, as a means to righteousness. But Lord, on the flip side of that, help us to become a people who wants to see and experience personal holiness in our life because of our great love for you. Help us to love you with everything we have and to evidence that by our life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.